reaching from way down here. Yeah. Yeah. From way down here. Welcome to Thread, a podcast designed to explore God's story and lead you into a full life in Christ. Thank you for joining us in this conversation, co-hosted by myself, Hannah D'Souza, and Dr. David Pochter. So hello everyone and welcome back to Thread, to episode 11 of Thread. I know. How are you, Dave? I'm excited that we're at episode 11 already, but we have a problem. We have a problem we have to clear up from episode 10. So apparently when our video was edited, we found out that our plant Gilgamesh, your plant Gilgamesh, was not in the frame. Very sad. So we probably looked crazy talking about uh, an invisible plant. (laughs) (laughs) So we've moved Gilgamesh into the frame, right? I have. He's right there for those that have video and can see the very end of the mantelpiece. Exactly. Little bonsai tree. Exactly. I think we're sticking with Gilgamesh for now, even though. Gilgi for short. It's fun to pronounce. (laughs) Gilgi. It's like algae. All right. Like we cleared up the plant, the plant, the yes, plant crisis. Yes, you'll see him. Okay, great. And it's a good incentive for me to keep him alive. So towards each season, hopefully, he'll still be there. Of that. But yes, yeah, so today is our last episode in the series of seven that we've just been recording on God's World Created. So when we outlined kind of the plan for this series, we planned on calling this episode Empire. And now the name, if you can see, is Babel. Okay. First of all, I think we need to clear up how do we pronounce Yeah, is it Babel? This word. Is that what you say in England? We, I say Babel, which I think is a UK way of pronouncing it. I yeah. think most Americans say Babel. I've heard it pronounced Babel, oh, really? Babel. The the funny thing is I actually went to see how is this supposed to be pronounced. And I think the actual proper Hebrew pronunciation is Babel. So everyone's wrong. Well, except the people that actually are speaking Hebrew. But <laughs> except you can call yeah, it Babel and I can call it Babel because you're English and I'm American. And so maybe it'll just be fun. Okay. We'll call it whatever we want to call it. <laughs> nice. So why, I guess, did we change the name? Why has the episode been changed from Empire to Babel? Babel? Yeah, so... We sketched out this kind of plan where we wanted to go for these three years in general. And then more specifically, we got down into this first year, what we wanted to cover. And I think when we were looking at this, the overall plan, we thought Empire would be a good place to go with this episode because that concept of episode is often used. Sorry, the concept of episode. Did I just say that? I did just say that. I think you did. (laughs) Concept of Empire. The concept of Empire (laughs) is often used talking about this. And I think it's appropriate. There's a lot of proper implications that we'll get into today. But the part that there's a couple parts that maybe are misleading about calling this empire. One, it's often used as a hard category that's set up in this dichotomy against kingdom. So it's like we're either building empire, we're building kingdom. And I've even heard sometimes it's used in contrast with shalom. So we're either building empire, we're pursuing shalom. And I I think whenever we get into these hard categories, we limit our ability to understand the complexity and the nuance of the heart and soul matters that are at play 
So hopefully we can unpack that a little Mm -hmm. bit today. The second thing Mm -hmm. that can tend to happen is when we land in these categories and we look at a text, we talked about this with the pericope titles. When we look at a text and we name it, we can actually neglect other aspects of what's happening in this story or in these scriptures. So by calling it empire, Mm -hmm. I realized there's another piece to this we're going to miss. And by calling it Babel, 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 whatever we decide, we have to say all three. We have to say all three every time. (laughs) It actually opens us up to allow the text to tell us what it wants to tell us. And so that's why we chose to change Mm. the name. So So we just stick into the text. We're trying. We're trying. trying, But not entirely. Well, (laughs) no, on that note, actually, I know we're not able to cover every story in this podcast. I don't know if you want to speak to... I, last week, I thought, we missed Cain and Abel. Yeah, we did. Or I don't know. There are some stories that perhaps will not get featured. I don't know if you want to speak to that. And so part of what's... Selection process. Yeah, I mean, we have three years. We think it's going to be 150 episodes. We don't know at this point. But what we do know is there's just no way to, to really dig down and flesh out all the beauty that's happening in this story. So if we follow these main mm. themes, this main storyline... We're going to be making choices and how we choose, you know, is based on the lens in which we have chosen to engage this story. So we may make good choices sometimes, and maybe we make bad choices by leaving out certain parts. And so <laughs> we're sorry to our listeners if we leave behind, you know, a story that you really wanted us to talk about, but that's kind of the nature of having to make selections. So on that note, we should probably jump right. into our text and our topics here yeah. for today. So. Today, we're going to kind of break this down into three parts. The first part, we're going to frame what's going on in Genesis 10 and 11 in general. And then we're going to narrow in on the story of Babel. And every time I say Babel, now I'm thinking, but Hannah's thinking Babel, and maybe it's just Babel. I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay. I digress. I'm so self-conscious. So we're going to first frame what's going on in Genesis 10 and 11. And then interestingly, this story fits right in the middle of this bigger picture. So let's start there. So this first piece is Noah to Abram, or Abraham. He becomes Abraham. So we're looking at the lineage of what happened from the flood until Abram enters the scene in Genesis 12. And the Genesis 10 and 11 text in general kind of shifts gears from the way that this most more origin story communicates. It's been more theological. There's been a lot of imagery in a lot of these the stories we've looked at so far. There's a lot of deep spirituality going on. And then all of a sudden we move to this text that's like this, it's mapping out a lineage, but it's almost aligning these geopolitical boundaries and it's creating this map for us to understand the ancient world in which Israel will eventually show up. They're not part of the story yet. So Israel might come late to the story, but what we have to know as the readers of the story is what's going on in the backstory. So part of what's interesting about Genesis 10 is it paints this picture of this diverse kind of ecumenical vision of human reality. We see all these cultures developing and they're all fanning out, and we see it directly from the lineage of Noah's three sons. 
But we see as this is happening, I would actually argue there's two plot lines developing. So first of all, we see what God intended in Genesis 1 when he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We see that happening, the scattering of human beings and the formation of nations and peoples and cultures. And we see that taking place in Genesis 10. But then there's this theological narrative that's building tension in the background. And that's really what leads us to today's story specifically. So this theological narrative is that, yes, God's intent is we fill the earth. And yes, God wants covenant with his people. And yes, God wants intimacy and he wants to be in relationship. And yet human beings continue to not pursue relationship. And we see this need for Yahweh to continue to intervene. We talked about that a lot with this, the flood narrative that God is intent at fulfilling God's in vision for mankind, and he's not going to let down that expectation. So these two plot lines are important for us to see the both and that are happening. So these nations that are developing will become the allies and the adversaries for Israel later. But this kind of central kind of plot line that's developing theologically is moving us towards a solution for humans in their relationship with Yahweh. So I've been reading a lot of Walter Brueggemann. He's, I really like Brueggemann in the Old Testament, on the Old Testament, how he frames the Old Testament, the work he does in his commentaries. And I came across this quote, and I know you and I got a chance to talk about before we started recording, but can you read this for us? I think it's a beautiful picture of what's developing in this theological plot line. Yeah. Yeah, he writes, this genealogy shows how the history of all creation is moving toward the history of this one people and this one man for the sake of the one promise. Right. So Brueggemann sees this kind of all setting up in this background that will eventually lead to salvation for mankind. And mm. of course, it's going to have to be coming through this nation, Israel, and God has to start with this very specific approach to building a nation. And we're going to get to that here in our next episode when we start talking about Genesis 12. But it's a beautiful imagery to see what's developing. So again, going back to Genesis 10, as we get kind of looking at these lineages of Noah's three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem, part of what's interesting in the backstory of the Genesis 11 narrative is something very different that's happening. And the Bible actually tells us that with all three of these sons, as their descendants formed and they started spreading out into their territories by their clans with their nations, it says that each one had its own language. Yeah, this is, this kind of blew my mind a little bit. I don't know why I thought everyone had the same language up until Babel. And that's when suddenly all the origin of all these different languages start. So yes, I was ignorant of this. Well, I mean, I've read it, but I just, I guess it didn't it doesn't register, register right. in the same way. Well, because when, yeah. by the time we get to Genesis 11, it seems so emphatic and we're going to get to that here in a little bit. Right. Yeah. And we'll talk about this, but what is really happening here behind the scenes? So maybe you could just read these three verses. So in Genesis 10, 5, in 10, 20, and in 10, 31, we see each of Noah's descendants and what happens in the, this conversation around languages. Mm. 
So the descendants of Japheth spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. These are the, and this is 1020, these are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. And then 1031, these are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. Right. So what do we see? Lots of territories, lots of clans, lots of <laughs> languages already, right? In Genesis yeah, 10. Three brothers with their own languages, their own nations. Yes. Fascinating. So if we already see these nations spreading out, speaking different languages, then we have to ask the question, by the time we get to Genesis 11, what's happening? <laughs> right? Mm. Now, yeah. it's not only that, that the story reads very differently, it's that the type of literature really changes. So the function of the story really changes. And, and this is, I mean, this is one of the many, 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 many reasons that scholars have mostly concluded that Genesis is, is a compilation of these beautiful writings that come from a few sources that are put together into what we have. That's why we have two Genesis accounts. That's why when we got to the flood narrative, we have, you know, the flood kind of being told twice in two different ways of wording it. I, I view this a lot as the reason we have four gospels. It's the same kind of thing, right? Why do we have four gospels? Well, we have these gospels that are telling the story from different texts, contexts, in a way that helps us recognize aspects that we need to see that we wouldn't without them, right? So the Genesis 10 piece, you know, you start with Genesis 10.1 and go all the way up really to Genesis 12, and it, it reads like one big table of nations. But then Genesis 11, 1 through 9 is this theological story placed right there that tells us something about human, kind of the human condition it steps back into this origin story feel for us. So it'd probably be good for us to read this now, the Babel, Babel, Babel story, if you don't <laughs> mind reading for us. Yeah, so Genesis 11, verse 1 to 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech, which now I'm questioning, Dave, having <laughs> read the previous three verses. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower of the people and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Okay, now I'm really curious with your London accent. So when you <laughs> talk it. about someone that's going on and on and on and they're talking too much, do you talk, do you say they're babbling? Oh, no, we don't. We say babbling. Okay. <gasps> that's a real contradiction there. <laughs> oh dear. No, so you're right. Okay. We don't. <laughs> All right. So we'll go okay. we'll go with babble. You know, reading these reading these texts with a literalist view gets really problematic, right? It's just 
So we, we have to accept that there's something bigger going on here than a literal at face value, meaning what, what is, what's God trying to tell us? So we'll, we'll break this down some more, but let's look specifically at a couple things that are going on in this verse. So in verse four, we see this instinct that human beings have, and this speaks to human nature. And I think that's one of the beauties of this story. We want to build ourselves a city and a tower that reaches the heavens. We want to make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the whole face of the earth. The tower and the city, in this case, are attempts at a self-serving unity, which is actually resisting God's scattering activity. So God told us to scatter, to multiply and go out, right? And our instinct is to know, protect, be together, and be one, be, be one in the sense of uniform, not unity here. We're talking about uniformity, one language, one culture. And so we have to then you know, look at what is this saying about human nature? Now, one of the fun things about this text to me, kind of some irony in, in this, in verse five, of course, human beings are saying, we want to build a tower that reaches the heavens. And then verse five, it says, the Lord came down. Right. So clearly the tower didn't reach the <laughs> yeah. Lord in the heavens. Nope. He still had it to was scraping God's knees. Yeah. Or toes or under his feet. He had to come down. <laughs> yeah. So how do we interpret the story? This is one of the great values that we have in looking back at these stories centuries later. We have developed all these other ways of understanding human beings psychology, we've developed the field of spirituality, we've developed theology. And by studying human nature and societies, we've learned a lot about the way humans behave and our instincts in ways that now we go back and we read these texts and we go, oh yeah, that makes sense here, right? Mm. So, in, and of course, we've already identified in, in our podcast, we're trying to address spirituality. So we want to address the truths that lie in this text as it pertains to the lived experience. So what we want to look at is how is Yahweh reacting to human beings in a way at a big picture level that really paint a picture of this interplay between human beings and Yahweh? So if we remember God's intent, God's intent, be fruitful and increase in numbers and fill the earth and subdue it, we see playing out in Genesis 10. But now we see in Genesis 11, no, human beings, just like they did in Genesis 3, well, you say, I can't eat of that tree. I want to eat from that tree. God says, well, I want you to scatter and fill the earth. They go, no, we don't want to scatter and fill the earth. We want to have one nation <laughs> and we want to use yeah. our our passion and our ingenuity and we want to build this city and we want to live together and do it all in this kind of way that we see best. And so this problem that enters is really pushing back on Yahweh's intent. So when we look at these stories, and this is what we'll spend the rest of our time talking about here today, when we look at these stories here, communicating these truths to us about ourselves and God, and how do we live and engage in the world? What we have to look at is what can we, what are they communicating to us? And I think there's two things that are really stand out. One is God's intent is for a multicultural world. Okay. I think we could all agree that that's, you know, happening in the story. God wants us to be 
diverse. Okay, so we'll we'll talk about that. The other one is God's intent for us is to have a channeled or bridled or focused passion. And that'll be fun to unpack. That one's a little bit trickier, maybe not as common to talk about. So we'll talk about what does that look like. But let's start with this conversation about Yahweh's intent for a multicultural world. Yeah, I think it's good we're raising this point because I think when I first, I guess, read the story of the Tower of Babel, like at face value, it did seem as though diversity and kind of the scattering, the forming of many languages, it seemed like it was a punishment <laughs> for right. their kind of passion or the ambition. Like this is the punishment is diversity. So is that that seems like a simplistic reading now. Well, so yeah, even if you pull that thread, what does that say then that diversity is was not God's original intent? If it's mm. punishment, then it communicates. But that's not what we right. actually see in the story. Yeah. Well, now we know there were languages pre this as well. <laughs> so I think it speaks more, instead of to punishment, I think it speaks more to God's determined intent for a multi faceted, multicultural experience in the world. Now, here's the part that gets tricky. We don't get told why. I mean, most of the time in these stories, we don't get told why. And that's one of the that we, things we start asking early on, like, why? Why, mommy? Why, daddy? And, you know, when you're a parent of a toddler, you just say, because I said so. And the reason you say, because I said so, is I can't possibly explain all the dimensions of the why to you now in these initial phases. And in a lot of ways, these early texts are written without a lot of the whys because we weren't able to handle the whys yet. We weren't ready for that. That's what the rest of the scriptures have to build out, and we've learned a lot since then. So when we now look back, I mean, let's just consider this, this multicultural desire for God. And when we try to, to work around that, our instincts now, I mean, we look at human history now and we can go, oh, look what happens when one culture believes and acts as if they are superior to other cultures. And there's this vast spectrum of how this plays out. Sometimes we just act in ways that discredit or demoralize other cultures as if there's something wrong with them. We judge them. And that can seem fairly benign. It, it, it's not that significant in the sense that, you know, we may just judge them internally or we, we aren't very kind. But this gets really ugly on the spectrum really fast, all the way to what we've witnessed happen, certainly in our lifetime, is genocide, where it goes to the extreme where we go, we believe we're so superior that we want to kill and destroy other cultures. I mean, we certainly, some of the horrible ones just even in this last century, the Holocaust, right? Rwanda, the genocide in Rwanda, the genocide in Cambodia, and so many more interesting, or maybe sadly, when I went to Wikipedia, even to type in the word genocide, and it made a list of all the genocides that are recorded, these massive, I mean, we're talking about millions of people being killed. You go, okay. Look at what happens with this instinct if it's not properly handled, that we think our culture is superior to others. Definitely. Yeah, I think what's also tragic about 
those kind of situations, all those stories and histories that a lot of these acts were perpetuated by those that professed faith, that professed belief in God, that um, even claimed Christianity. Even speaking about diversity and its importance, I think something I feel like in Christendom, we have to be careful of not having token Christianity, not Christianity, token diversity, or in churches, have, like claiming diversity and its benefits without also doing the work that's required. And when I think about like what that might look like, I think it's recognizing ways in which the dominant culture might have shaped church culture. And by dominant, I don't necessarily mean numerically, but the culture that holds the most influence or authority or power. I grew up, as I've said previously in the podcast, in a church in London that itself was a planting that came out of America. And I think a lot of mission work comes out of the United States. And along with that can come some like Anglo-white American culture too. And in that zeal, I think, to bring the gospel to people, which is a good thing. Sometimes we can be unaware of how culture gets transferred along with the gospel, along with that mission work. I even think about some of the Americanisms that came with the gospel, even in my own church. I remember my very English grandparents listening to a service and kind of being jarred by like the use of the word awesome or <laughs> baseball analogies that they were not familiar with. But again, that's, I mean, that's a harmless, I guess, way, but an example of how it just kind of creeps in there, culture can. And I think the problem comes when we insist on our culture as the one that needs to dominate or be the predominant culture. Something I actually appreciate about the way the mission team was run that I was got to be a part of in Eastern Europe last year in Moldova was the importance that was actually placed on the entire team learning the language. We took Russian lessons. We took Romanian lessons. I was part of the worship team. We sang in those languages on a Sunday. It wasn't a trick, which I am grateful for. I loved that. I feel it's a privilege always to get to see church in other countries too and in other cultures. I think about getting to visit a church in Lusaka in Zambia and seeing the worship there, and it was very authentic. I mean, you've probably seen that from being in South Africa too. It was true to them. and It wasn't kind of, yeah, whitewashed or made out to be something else, but it was lively. It was dancing, it was drums, and it was beautiful. And I know, yeah, this podcast is about spirituality, as we've said. And I, when I think about spirituality, I think about wholeness and allowing people to show up to church, um, to show up with their faith with their whole self, including hurts and parts of their identity. Yeah, not feeling like they need to leave those parts, leave parts of their identity at home to fit in or appease the dominant culture. But yeah, so I think it's great that we were talking about this idea of not one culture dominating, because I think it's crucial today, definitely. So the, the challenge that we have today, which is a unique kind of more contemporary challenge, is even as we read these stories or these texts, each nation that had its own language and culture was separated from one mm. another. Right. Now, in the last few hundred years, we have this blending that has never happened in history the way it has now, right? So the United States is this huge experiment in some ways of all these cultures overlapping with one another, and in it, it forms its own culture in time. But it creates all kinds of complexities. And, and I know, look, sometimes when we can really lean in and see the beauty and diversity and what God's intent was, we just marvel. 
things like the United Nations and how it works or watching the Olympics or, I mean, for me, I'm a, I'm a love to eat different foods from different cultures. It's one of my favorite things about traveling. And I just, you know, you learn to see culture through food, but I also know how quickly our view and how we handle this can affect our own spirituality. So quick example, we moved to South Africa in 2010, and I remember moving there from Chicago, and I'd never, I'd only visited Africa one time just to decide if we were going to move there. So I did a lot of reading. I watched movies. I read Long Walk to Freedom, Nelson Mandela. I knew going in, there's 11 languages in South Africa that are all official languages. And I prepared myself to embrace this multicultural experience. And I had such a rich, honestly, experience there. And it was amazing what I learned and how much joy it brought to me learning about different people and different cultures. Well, the contrast, when I moved back to the United States, I thought, well, I'm just moving back home to America. And I had lived in the North my whole life. I never lived in Texas. And I landed in San Antonio. And the first year that I was here, I didn't even really realize how much it was affecting me, but I was judging the culture of Texas internally, and it caused me to pull back. I'm like, well, why do people, you know, fill in the blank, why are people so proud to be Texan? Why does everyone have cowboy hats and boots and barbecue <laughs> you don't and have big cowboy trucks hats. and all, all those things? Well, no, mm. back then, I just, because I didn't, Learn to reach to really reach and embrace the way that God, I believe, intended. I found myself in judgment, and so I realized about a year in, I said, I, "I have to change here. I have to lean in and embrace this culture the way I did in South Africa. It's different." Hmm. So I went and bought a pair of cowboy boots. Oh, we need to see those at some point. I showed up for church my first Sunday <laughs> in cowboy boots, and I couldn't believe how many people noticed. Oh, <laughs> like, I love your boots. I'm like, wow, it really made a difference. I learned how to smoke a brisket. I started listening to country music, which was a big move for me. But the, the point was, I thought if I'm going to be here and I'm going to minister to people and I'm going to mm. love people here, then I have to embrace this intent that Definitely. God has for all these cultures. Anyway, mm. so let's talk secondly and lastly here about Yahweh's intent for our passion. This one's trickier to navigate because. Historically, I think what the church has done to the concept of desire is they just see desire sometimes as wrong. And so we interpret the ambition here as being wrong instead of what the ambition was about that was wrong. So if we look at creation itself and desire as God created humans to have desire, there's all kinds of things we see. We see God creates this beautiful, place for us. So beauty and a desire for beauty is integral into how we are created. We desire knowledge. We desire to work. We desire to find meaning and fulfillment in life. We desire, and it, and it even tells us that we are to rule the earth. So this desire to rule is part of our creation. So desire or eros is not inherently wrong. One of my favorite quotes from Ron Rollheiser comes from a book he wrote called The Shattered Lantern. And it says, each of us aches for significance, meaning, uniqueness, preciousness, immortality, 
and great love and great beauty in their lives. This yearning is congenital and incurable. And I think that's a beautiful depiction of the way we're created to have passion. So the question is, what do we do with this passion? So for me, when we get into this text, it really specifically paints this image of, I think of horses, you know, the, the wild horse, which has all this energy and passion, but it's unbridled, so it's not useful. And when a horse is broken or brought under the ability to control its passion, it becomes this useful, powerful animal. And I think that's a lot of what's happening is God's calling us to this yoke of following his ambition and passion for us because he knows that's where we'll thrive and we're the most useful. But unbridled, we create all kinds of problems. And I think that's what this text is speaking to. Yeah, I think it even speaks to this idea of us being image bearers. It makes sense that if God cares about his glory and kind of has that same passion in a way that we also would reflect some of that in our own identity. Yeah, bearing his image. So So there's a movie that recently came out that I think articulates this well. Have you seen Oppenheimer? I haven't. I haven't seen Barbie either. Barbie or Oppenheimer. So I'm behind. Well, I didn't ask you about culturally. Barbie, but um, <laughs> yes, or Oppenheimer. I haven't seen Barbie, but I did see Oppenheimer. I thought it was just a magnificent depiction of what I think is happening here. You know, God says in this text that if man puts their minds to it, there's nothing they can't do. Right. So there's this recognition that passion and ingenuity can really accomplish amazing things. I don't think this is going to ruin the movie because it's actually the truth of, of history. So okay, if people not. are unaware of the history, no spoilers. Then, then I'm going to spoil history for people here. But <laughs> <laughs> the, problem, the problem is we have the ability as human beings to create a nuclear bomb with ingenuity and passion and all, I mean, $2 billion and lots of sacrifice, we were able to do that. But really the question that I think this movie brings out is, and then what? So, okay, there's implications to this unbridled passion. There's costs. And the big question that these scientists and then politicians and then the world has been asking ever since is, are we sure we wanted to do this? Because look at the world that we now live in. Now we have a nuclear threat that we never would have. We, we can actually obliterate ourselves as human beings in a way that we never could have if we didn't create this. And so I look at this text as saying, yeah, God, God's almost acknowledging human beings are capable of amazing things, but it doesn't mean they should do these things that could be detrimental to humankind. So we have to figure out how do we how do we really lean into this passion that God made us but to channel it in such a way that is grounded and helpful and so you know when we think about eros i think eros needs to be grounded spiritually relationally morally we need spiritual community because it helps to keep us focused on what God intends right I mean, we need community even for the sake of if we're, if we're loners and independent, we just get strange. 
right? <laughs> people, people that Very don't true. have community. We, my wife's told me that before we've kind of, every once in a while, we've been married 32 years and I'm like, you know, honey, if, if something ever happened to you, and I genuinely feel this way, like if something ever happened to her, I have Aww. no desire to ever get married again. It's just yeah. not who I am. Now, some people do. They just, I want to be married. That's not me. And she, she's like, okay, that's fine. But you definitely need to be around people because otherwise you get really weird. <laughs> so, <laughs> a little hermit. Thank you, honey. The, Thank I'll you, come honey. visit you in the, in the wilderness somewhere. Exactly. But we're created to need moral boundaries, and that's why God gives us moral boundaries. Without it, we become a risk to society and to ourselves. We also are created to have success boundaries. So we can't accomplish everything we want in the way we want to, or we'd be just ugly people, right? right. We'd all be narcissists running around. I mean, the, the failure is so good for us and it's hmm. built into the universe. It's baked in in such a way as a boundary to keep us from having this unbridled ambition that, that destroys and ruins and hmm. uh, creates all kinds of havoc in life. So I think the, the point of all this is, yes, Yahweh created us with Eros, but that Eros needs to be channeled, bridled directed, grounded, and then it can become a beautiful thing. And I think that's what this story is telling us. Hmm. This goes really hand in hand with even the episode on human limitations too. And it seeing, does. yeah, the benefit actually to limitations, to failure. I, I liked how you talked about, yeah, the importance of failure actually. I think I've seen the, the story of like the Tower of Babel and the pastors like, why is God dampening their spirit? Like, oh, they're trying, they're, they're doing something great. I think this framework is helpful even in, it was kind of a self-serving unity. I think that's the phrase you used. Mm. And yeah, yeah, the difference between unity and uniformity. Yeah, that they're one language, one ambition. So yes, the limitation was needed. The scattering was needed. Absolutely needed. So this actually is the end of our series on God's world created. We're now out of this prehistory Genesis 1 through 11 piece. We're going to now move on to a, another brand new series called God's Nation Birthed. And this next one will start with Abram in Genesis 12, and it will move all the way through Genesis 12 to Genesis 50, which is kind of the age of the patriarchs, as it's been typically known. And so this will actually carry us through the, the journey of the rest of Genesis, and we're going to have to skip some juicy parts, but we have to stick the to highlights. the story. <laughs> so it's you, me, and Gilgi. Gilgi. Moving on to, we'll see if Gilgi can well. survive. <laughs> I hope If so. he can survive the next series. So okay, pressure's on for you to keep him alive, <laughs> right? Exactly. Oh. Okay. So another great conversation, Hannah. Yes. You've made me feel better about failure now. Failure and limitations. They're oh, my good. friends. They are your friends. They're from God, <laughs> right? Passion, yeah. failure. It's another important tension mm. that we talk about, and we'll keep talking about those tensions. So anyway, right. always great to talk with you, yes. and we'll see you next week. See you then. Bye. Thank you for joining this Thread Conversation. We're more than a podcast. Check out threadpodcast.org for more immersive content. Though I'm on here, I get a better view. A 
love this man. 